This is The Weekly for Friday, July 12th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. With special counsel Robert Mueller scheduled to testify before two House committees on Wednesday, what questions will he face and what new will we learn? The testimony will be the latest chapter in a long-running media story involving the 2016 election, allegations of Russian collusion, and the Trump campaign. The 448-page Mueller report was released back on April the 18th, and Harvard professor Thomas Patterson decided to summarize those findings, as he called it, a 123-page report for those too busy to read it all. In late May, the special counsel said he wanted the report to speak for itself, but Democrats in Congress demanding a chance to ask questions. We'll have more with Professor Patterson in just a moment, but first, Special Counsel Mueller, back in May. Now, I hope and expect this to be the only time that I will speak to you in this manner. I am making that decision myself. No one has told me whether I can or should testify or speak further about this matter. There has been discussion about an appearance before Congress. Any testimony from this office would not go beyond our report. It contains our findings and analysis and the reasons for the decisions we made. We chose those words carefully and the work speaks for itself. And the report is my testimony. I would not provide information beyond that which is already public in any appearance before Congress. Those comments by Robert Mueller this past May. Of course, he will testify before a congressional committee, two congressional committees on Wednesday. And joining us from Boston is Harvard professor Tom Patterson. He has put together a summary of the Mueller report, quote, for those too busy to read it all. Let me begin with the line of questioning you think Robert Mueller will get when he sits before Congress on Wednesday. Well, I think what's going to happen, and it'll be different, of course, on the Democratic side and the Republican side, uh, he has said that he's not going to go beyond the report. But I think they're going to ask him questions in the context of the report to, to try to get him to elaborate in ways that really kind of support their side. Uh, so I think, for example, on the Republican side, I'd be really surprised if you don't get questions like, Um, It looks like that uh, President Trump, uh, some of his actions uh, were all about trying to maintain the legitimacy of his election and had nothing to do with trying to obstruct justice. Is that correct, uh, special counsel? I I think you're going to get that kind of question on the the Republican side, and then Democrats will try to frame uh, things from their perspective uh, and try to get uh, special counsel Mueller to say in effect, he won't say it directly, of course, that um, Donald Trump uh, obstructed justice. But do you think there will be a new storyline? Will we learn anything new from Robert Mueller? Well, I do think um, they're a little bit like uh, presidential debates. And I've always thought that we underestimate on some level kind of what people learn from from a presidential debate. Uh, Journalists cover these candidates you know, throughout the campaign. And uh, one of the complaints they have about presidential debates is they've heard it all before. But uh, the fact is, uh, when the American public watches a debate, they haven't heard it all before. And I think that will be true also of Mueller's testimony, that um, a lot of it will be familiar. And for news junkies, maybe almost all of it will be familiar. But 
there's a real large swath of the American public that uh, at least significant parts of his testimony will be revealing to them. Uh, and I think that's really the importance of his appearance before the Congress. Um, you know, in the state public statement, the one public statement he made after the uh, release of, of his report, you know, he, he basically said, you know, it's all there. Um, but um, trying to get the American public to really kind of dig in on it, um, you know, that's that to me is the challenge. And, uh, you know, his testimony, I think, will, will just open some eyes. Uh, and certainly I, my guess would be, uh, because we've seen it at every step on the way, that uh, people listening to him will pull out parts that they find agreeable and others will pull out different parts and maybe it won't change very many minds but at least it will deepen uh, uh, Americans understanding of what the report contains did you expect this are you surprised that he's testifying before Congress or was it expected well he said he would like not to uh, and uh, but obviously Democrats would like him to speak before the Congress and uh, um, and they have ways to to compel that, uh, you know, they've subpoenaed a number of uh, both current and former members of the Trump administration to appear before the Congress. And, uh, you know, I think um, Robert Mueller throughout his career uh, has been very mindful of the rule of law, and he understands that he could be subpoenaed uh, to appear before the Congress if he, if he wasn't willing to, to, to do that uh, on his own. And, uh, I think he just simply didn't want that kind of headline when it was pretty clear that the Democrats were going to insist that he come before the Congress, or at least on the House side, come before Congress and uh, and, and speak about his report and his nearly two-year investigation. Speaking of headlines, I love the title of your 123-page report, a summary of the Mueller report for those too busy to read it all. And boy, a lot of us are busy. So how do you uh, condense 448 pages to 123 pages? Well, first of all, let me just say my own kind of personal motivation to do it. I mean, I'm one of those people who is too busy to read it all. You know, and I teach government. And, uh, you know, I thought I've got to read it. And one week would pass and I'd say to myself the next week, I've got to get that and I've got to read it. And uh, I kind of could never just in my own mind, say, I'm going to have the time to go through a nearly 500-page document that is very much in, in uh, a legal document in many, many ways. And uh, and I thought, I'm, I'm not alone in that category. And uh, so then the question came about how do you abridge it or how do you condense it by, by, by what rules? And I, the one rule I wanted to follow was that I not let my own biases affect in any way what I eliminated from the report. Um, and early on, after reading the full report, it finally, of course, was the incentive I needed to read the read the whole thing. Um, I decided that that I would focus on volume two. Uh, and here's the reason for that: in volume one, that's really about Russian interference in the. Um, in the 2016 election, uh, and there's a lot of interesting material there, and I think Americans do need to understand the extent of, uh, of Russian interference in the campaign and the kind of activities that Russia engaged in. But for me, Volume 1 is primarily uh, a document to be poured over by policymakers who need really to protect us from this kind of intervention, interference in future elections. To me, volume one really speaks to policymakers, their responsibility. 
Volume two, uh, on the other hand, uh, really speaks to the issue of uh, whether President Trump obstructed justice in terms of his response to what the uh, special counsel was doing in terms of of its investigation. Now, it strikes me that that's where the public really needs to kind of weigh in and kind of look at the evidence. We, you know, if you if you pay attention to the news coverage, um, and uh, you know, I do flip from one can, uh, channel to another, or, or um, what you're getting for the most part is spin with Democrats saying he obstructed justice, uh, and they're debating whether that's impeachable or not, or whether they should go ahead with impeachment. Russia and uh, Republicans saying no, no obstruction, uh, no impeachment. This is ridiculous. Um, the, uh, but, you know, I think as a citizen to dig in and look at the evidence, and it's a really fairly complicated uh, picture that you get, uh, but it's not so complicated that you can't make sense of it, and different people will read uh, what's in volume two, which is the, works through that whole range of activities that might uh, constitute areas for obstruction of justice. Um, there's a lot of content there. It doesn't all point in one direction. Uh, and in some ways, I, you know, it, it, it's one of those things, if you really care about our democracy and the kind of leadership we have and, and the expectations we have of the leadership, um, this is this is time well spent. And again, I think uh, you'll get different readers who will come out in, in different positions um, after they after they do read it. But I think an honest reading of it is not a bad act of citizenship uh, in where we are politically at this point in time. And I've gone through the, the the document, as you point out, there is a lot of legalese, and there does seem to be areas of redundancy. Did you find that as well? Well, those are some of the rules that I used in cutting it down. So the big cut came, of course, with saying, I'm going to focus on volume two. And then um, within that, uh, I eliminated the redundant information, and there's a lot of it. I didn't take it all out. Um, I left the entire executive summary in. And then, of course, when you get into the more detail, there's a lot of overlap between that short executive summary. But... That's kind of the overview. So I didn't really kind of deal with that redundancy. But then you start to get into the the more detailed uh, exposition of the of the evidence, and there's still quite a bit of repetition in there. So that was one of the things that I eliminated. Um, a second thing that I eliminated uh, were the footnotes. And uh, anyone who's poured through the full report knows that there are lots of footnotes, more than a thousand in that report, and uh, most of them are, are really kind of timelines. They're really uh, the date of an email, or the date of a news story, or the date of an interview that was done by the investigative team. Now, I think for someone who really wanted to study this as a scholar or a legal analyst, they would want those. I think for the ordinary citizen, they just kind of take up space. Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. And then the third area was what I consider peripheral material. And peripheral material is, is kind of material that really doesn't really get help advance kind of your understanding of it. So one category of peripheral material is once they start to get into the numbered statutes and kind of go through that list. I think if you're a lawyer, you can make sense of that, but it doesn't affect kind of the substantive argument that the uh, special counsel's team was putting together. So um, those were eliminated. And, of course, uh, 
there are chunks of the uh, of the of volume two that are redacted. Interestingly, um, there's more in volume one that's redacted, but there's still quite a bit that's redacted in volume two. And of course, I had no way to put that in. So, but I actually did end up saving space because I didn't have to block out two pages. I could just put redaction at this point, right? And uh, and you know that took a lot. It didn't take two pages to do that. Let me remind our listeners that we are talking with Professor Tom Patterson. He is a Bradley Professor of Government and the Press at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And he's also out with a new review on the Mueller report for those, quote, too busy to read it all. So having read it all, what's your overall assessment? Well, I was impressed, Steve, with the uh, uh, thoroughness of the investigation and the even-handedness of the investigation. I think anyone who takes the time to go through the report we'll see this was not a partisan effort this was a really professional effort on the part of Robert Mueller and his legal team and they're really quite fair in how they treat the evidence Um, and you know what I found really helpful as a citizen reader was they laid out very clearly the standards for obstruction of justice Um, there has to be an obstructive act uh, simply an act that kind of interferes a little bit. That's not necessarily an obstructive act. Um, The act must have a nexus to a pending or contemplated uh, official proceeding. So the fact that an act might, in fact, kind of mislead the public, uh, if it's not related to an official proceeding, like a grand jury investigation, uh, there cannot be obstruction of justice in that particular case. And then intent uh, as the third leg of the stool. And that's a question of, uh, and that's harder, of course, is to what were the motives behind the actions of the individual. And, uh, and I thought when you, when you really dig into this, uh, they work really hard to be even-handed in trying to assess motive. And uh, in many cases, they, they conclude uh, we can't even judge motive here. Uh, it is such a complicated situation. It could go this way. It could go that way. Uh, We're not trying to read someone's mind. We can't read someone's mind. And uh, on that particular point, uh, you know, we just have to kind of pass on the question of uh, of intent. Uh, In other cases, of course, they 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 can come down more firmly on one side or the other. But, Professor, as somebody who uh, has reviewed it, studied this, you teach this at Harvard, from your standpoint, because the question will be asked on Wednesday, did the president obstruct justice? Well, I, I, I deliberately don't provide an answer to that. In I do introduce the volume, so I do talk a bit uh, in the introduction uh, of my summary about why I did it, uh, what standards I used. Uh, to eliminate material and the like, and why I think citizens ought to read it. Uh, I stay away from the question of trying to guide people's uh, conclusions. I I think this is something uh, that citizens ought to read and make up their own mind by their own standards uh, and not have a Harvard professor uh, or a talk show host or a Republican leader or a Democratic leader uh, tell them what to think about about. Uh, how all of this evidence kind of stacks up and whether it comes down uh, on the favor of absolving Trump, of President Trump, of obstruction of justice, or whether it incriminates him. And, uh, you know, I do think that there are uh, 
there's a lot of material here. Again, it doesn't point in a single direction. And I think uh, different people would weigh it differently depending on kind of what they think is important. And, for example, um, a lot of what someone might kind of quickly think is obstruction of justice on the president's part, one of the concerns, and the Mueller report brings this out very clearly, uh, one of the things that was motivating uh, many of uh, President Trump's actions was that he thought it would raise the, a question about the legitimacy of his election, uh, which is very different from uh, trying to obstruct justice. I mean, he was the whole question. You know, of course, he he won through the electoral college, lost the popular vote. Uh, the Russians interfered in the election uh, to help uh, uh, Donald Trump, and uh, you know he's pretty sensitive to that. The whole question about whether he had a legitimate presidency or not. Um, now, that's one motive. Uh, and that's not necessarily a motive around obstructing justice. That's a motive relating to kind of reputation and standing. I want to ask you about the media coverage around the Mueller report. But as I recall, you were part of a study after the 2016 election looking at how cable television, how the media in general covered Donald Trump as a candidate. What did you learn? Well, when we did that study in 2016, um, we found a couple of things relating to uh, Donald Trump's candidacy. Um, one was that he got far more coverage uh, than the other candidates, and that was true at every stage of the campaign. So when the Republican candidates were jousting for the Republican nomination, he had by far the most uh, news coverage of any of the Republican contenders. Uh, then he gets into the general election, and he had substantially more coverage uh, uh, than Hillary Clinton did in the general election. So um, that's a little unusual that one candidate uh, would would essentially get that much coverage, that much attention over the course of the campaign. And, you know, that worked uh, to his advantage during the 2016 election. It, it helped him set the agenda uh, in terms of what the issues you know his issues got more 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 play than than his opponents' issues did, and the way he characterized his opponents, um, you know, with Hillary Clinton locker up and and uh, crooked Hillary and the like, um, his criticisms of her were voiced much more often in the media than her criticisms of him. So, you know, that was one of the principal findings of the of the study, and. Uh, in some other ways, we, what we found was, was rather typical of, of election coverage, uh, extraordinary attention to uh, the horse race, who's up, who's down, uh, much less attention to the policy issues, the question of you know, what these candidates would do if they get elected uh, president of the United States, what kind of leaders they would make. So the substance of the campaign was underplayed, the tactics, the strategy, the polls uh, were overplayed, but that's a pretty... Uh, traditional pattern to the election coverage. What was quite unusual about uh, 2016 was just how much attention uh, the media gave Trump. And interestingly, in the early part, uh, they kind of turned on him toward the end and gave him the kind of treatment they normally give any candidate for for the, for the presidency. The, the coverage turned negative at some point. But early on, the coverage actually was, was quite positive uh, for Donald Trump. Uh, unlike Hillary Clinton's coverage, which was negative uh, from basically the day that she announced her candidacy. She never had a month in which her positive press outweighed her negative press. That wasn't true of Donald Trump. He had about six months where 
his positive coverage uh, outweighed his negative coverage. Because as you well know, generally speaking, the media echo chamber around the country was that Donald Trump could not win. Well, that conceivably is, is one reason he was getting a lot of coverage. Um, you know, he was very good for ratings, uh, which they discovered fairly early on. So, you know, you put Donald Trump on television and, and uh, then, you know, and your ratings went up. And, uh, you know, and it was, a, it was obviously an incentive on, on, on cable for them to, you know, keep his face front and center in the campaign. Uh, and in some ways, you know, the, uh, you know, Donald Trump attacks the press almost daily, um, but probably no single individual has done more to bring audience back. The news audience has been dropping pretty significantly, as you know, uh, for the past 20 years or so. Uh, and uh, Donald Trump comes along, and actually it's kind of an upward trend at the moment. So, And the reason, of course, is that he's a, he's a magnet, and, uh, you know, he does draw attention. And I think he understood that very well. I mean, he said very early in his campaign, uh, it's not the polls, it's the ratings. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and he went for the ratings, and he knew his poll standing would, if he could be on a lot, define the agenda, define his opponents, that, uh, you know, the polls would catch up and, um, and he would have a good shot at the nomination. I think he was probably still surprised that he won the election, but... Um, but I, I think he understood very well the dynamic of the press in a presidential campaign. And I ask you about that 2016 report as a way to talk about the Mueller report today and how it's being covered, whether on cable, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, social media, the more legacy press like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post. So has the coverage been fair or has it shifted as we get away from the release of the report and ahead of Robert Mueller's testimony on Wednesday? Well, I, I think, you know, in the first couple of days when the report came out, um, I, th- I think there was some attention to really the details of the report, trying to get people to understand uh, what the investigation had uncovered. Uh, you know, since then, and uh, Carl Bernstein, you know, really had, I think, an op-ed on this a day or two ago. But, you know, since then, uh, almost all the coverage related to the Mueller report is in the context of, you know, Democrats saying this, Republicans saying that. We're getting a lot of spin around it. Uh, and there are a lot of stories in the Mueller report. If journalists would really dig in, the evidence is really interesting. It's complicated. There's some great stories to tell uh, around what happened during the 2016 campaign and what's happened subsequently with the Trump administration um, and the Mueller investigation. You know, there's a lot of content there, uh, but, uh, you know, like a lot of things, uh, you know, the the facts kind of get played out the first couple of days or early on in the coverage, and then it shifts into this game mode about who's winning, who's losing this battle for public opinion, and uh, you tend to get spin. Now, the journalists aren't providing the spin, but they're they're covering the spinsters and not, uh, you know, not people who are trying to kind of get the, the public to really pay attention to the content itself. And as somebody who teaches this uh, to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, this must give you just plenty of material to talk about in future classes. Well, it, it does, although I, I'm, I must say, and so, you know, very much like uh, Donald Trump um, is really good for the media business. Um, 
he's actually very good for the classroom. Um, the, um, you know, I think almost every week something happens with this president uh, that kind of breaks tradition, uh, breaks the norms, uh, illuminates some aspect of our politics, whether it's the separation of powers, whether it's federalism, whether it's our understanding about our relationship uh, to the uh, to others in, in international affairs. Uh, you know, the, the teaching moments kind of just flow uh, out of the Trump presidency. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it's made, made my job easier in the classroom and uh, other faculty that I've talked with uh, have a similar kind of view. Have you thought if you were Congressman Thomas Patterson and not professor and had the chance to spend five minutes with Robert Mueller and question him, either a member of the House Judiciary or the House Intelligence Committee, what would you ask him? Well, you have to give, you have to give me a, a, a party. Uh, you have to call me something. You have to make me either a Democrat or a Republican. Okay, well, let's play that game. First, as a Democrat, what, what would you ask him? Well, I probably would, would take... One of these, you know, it goes through eight or ten particular areas where there was at least the possibility of obstruction of justice. Um, and I would either take what I thought as a, as a Democrat was the one where it was clearest, at least in my mind, that he had obstructive justice. I would probably try to frame a question around that. Or what I would do is to ask the more general question you know, of these eight or ten things, which of those do you think uh, is the clearest case of obstruction of justice, putting putting Mueller on the spot? Um, now, if I was a Republican, uh, and, we're, and now I'm wearing the Republican hat, uh, I'd, I'd probably kind of reverse that a little bit. And But I think what I think the Republicans will do will really, I think they'll try to get into motive. Um, you know, was the president actually trying to obstruct justice here? Or were there other motives that were were at play? Um, and they're going to have some other things, too, I think they're going to point out. One is that much of what he did uh, was lawful. Uh, for example, the firing of Comey. Uh, as the president of the United States, under Article 2, you can fire your executive officers. And uh, Comey is the director of FBI. That was certainly within Trump's lawful powers. Now, the question, of course, is when you get into the details of it, what was the motive for the firing of of, of, of Comey? Uh, so that's where you get into the issue of obstruction of justice. Um, and uh, I think they'll point out that they, um, they'll ask Mueller, isn't it correct that you found no collusion uh, between the Trump campaign uh, and the Russians? Uh, they'll probably ask that 10 times <laughs> during the course of, of his testimony because, you know, that is kind of the White House line. So I think that's where they'll go with that. Um, and then, uh, although maybe not in this, but they could, uh, they'll say, look, this is all out in the open. Uh, much of what uh, is in the report, um, you know, he stated it publicly. He wasn't trying to hide it from anybody. Uh, can you obstruct justice if you're that transparent about what you're doing? So um, I think both sides in the hearings will have plenty of ammunition and both will be intent on trying to get from, from Mueller uh, a soundbite or a couple of soundbites that seem to kind of give some insight into how Mueller really would have come down if he'd had the final say on this. If it wasn't up to the attorney general to decide what the next step would be, 
did Mueller really think Donald Trump obstructed justice? And uh, I think they're all going to be trying to, on the Democratic side, to get something out of his, uh, from him that suggests that's where he stands. Uh, and for Republicans, they're going to be working the other side. Safe to say you will be watching the hearings. I will be watching the hearings. And Thomas Patterson, you're the author of a number of books, including Informing the News and The Vanishing Voter, twice named as Teacher of the Year and Advisor of the Year at Harvard University's Kennedy School. What is your background? Well, I grew up in a small town in Minnesota, a town of a thousand. Um, Minnesota is one of those great political states where, um, you know, it's a very public-minded state. And, um, you know, a lot of people who are interested in government, a lot of people who go into government, uh, come out of uh, kind of the small towns in, in, in the upper Midwest. And, uh, you know, um, my dad was very interested in politics. And I think um, I, I was probably, probably by the time I was age 10, I was kind of hooked on an interest in politics. Now, I did face a question at one point as to whether I was going to be active in politics or studying politics, and and I decided to go the academic route, and um, I did my undergraduate work in South Dakota. Uh, I served uh, in the military after that. I went through ROTC, so I was a commissioned officer. I uh, spent a year in Vietnam uh, in that role. Uh, then I went uh, to the University of Minnesota, my home state university. That's where I got my Ph.D., and uh, Taught for about 20 years at the Maxwell School at Syracuse, loved it, um, had the chance to come uh, and take the Bradley chair at uh, the Kennedy School, and uh, I've been now at the Kennedy School for, well, not quite 25 years, but we're getting close. The Mueller Report is 448 pages in length. You have abridged it to 123 pages, a summary of the report for those too busy to read it all. Professor Thomas Patterson joining us on the phone in Boston Thank you for spending time here on C-SPAN Radio and on our podcast, The Weekly. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app. We thank you for listening.